Well, welcome uh, again to Christchurch this morning. It's so great to have you with us. Thank you for tuning in from home. It is a real pleasure to be able to share God's word with you. My name is Morris. I'm one of the ministers here at Christchurch. And it is, well, thank you for giving us your time. Now, I need to apologise to begin with, because uh, often when I start the talk online, I say, if you're a child, your parents might want to give you something to do, or, um, you know, assuming that if you're a child, you wouldn't want to listen. And someone has told me recently that their kids do like listening, uh, which is really kind of you kids. So thank you. Thank you for giving me your uh, time, even if you're doing Lego or colouring along with it. Thank you for listening along. I hope you'll be able to talk to your mum or your dad about it afterwards. So apologies for assuming you weren't up to listening when of course you are. Now, I'm going to begin by telling you about my friend. I have a friend. That's the first piece of good news for today. Let's, uh, this friend is somewhat anonymized in this story, but let's call him James. And James is as gentle, as pastoral, as humble a soul as you could possibly imagine. Uh, I can't introduce you to him because, like I said, I've anonymized the story, so you'll just have to believe me. And James loved people and loved Jesus so much that he gave up his very uh, successful career and became a vicar, a minister in the Church of England. And he ended up as the village vicar at a parish church in Middle England. Think something like Midsummer Murders, but with less killing. And the parish church in that community that he was vicar of, it was a centre for the community. The people who ran the church were also the leaders in the village. And no one had planned for this over the years, but the church had sort of become only that, only a community centre. You know, a sort of tea party and jumble sale and, and toddler group type community hub, which is good in itself, but there just wasn't much talk about Jesus anymore. So James went to be vicar of this church. He didn't cancel anything, he didn't close anything down, he didn't stop anything, but he said to the church over time, hey guys, really good news. Christianity is more than being a social club. Christianity is the living God by his spirit coming into our lives. And his spirit does that because God's son, Jesus, loved us and died for us. And that's what this whole thing is all about. And this beautiful historical church building we have, it's a gift. But let's not let it distract us from the amazing truth that God himself wants to come, not to this building once a week, but to live in our lives every day. And the tea parties, the jumble sales, well, we can use those as a way to bring the blessing of knowing God to our community. And over time, James was sharing this message. Well, people were furious. In a sense, James was surprised by that because he was like, you know, this thing that God loves us and he sent his son to die for us. I actually think it's good news. I don't think it's bad news. It's really exciting and brilliant news that God is not primarily interested in protecting a historic building in a beautiful village, but bringing his own presence by his spirit into our lives. And the way for that to happen is so easy. We just trust his words, his promises in the message of the gospel. That sounds better to me than arguments on the parish council about daffodil planting. We're being offered more. It's life-giving, it's awesome, it's brilliant, but the people were furious. 
They hated him. They ignored his family at the street and at the school gate. He got anonymous letters, threats of violent behaviour, articles written in the local paper about how he was ruining the village, and eventually he had to leave. Now you just have to believe me, James is the loveliest, kindest person you could ever hope to have come across, but that's what happened. It's shocking, maybe because we have different expectations of Middle England, but we shouldn't be too shocked. It has actually always been the reaction of people when the truth of what the living God is offering seems to undermine or attack what has become a religion to them. So where people think that a certain system, a certain setup means they are approved by God, or maybe even it's not a sort of Godward thing, maybe they just think, well, this system or what I have shows that I'm a good and worthwhile person and I do good things for the world. And someone comes along and says, well, actually, God's offering something different to that. People hate their system being attacked. Now, like Jesus, Stephen, who we've had our reading about today, one of the earliest Christians, is offering people who he dearly loves something that objectively is just amazing. You can't argue with it. A connection with God so deep that he comes right into your life, all at his cost, the cost of his son Jesus. That is a brilliant offer. But what the people in the story see is that that means the religious system already in place is not right. And that perceived attack on their religious system brings hatred and violence, in a way just like my friend James. Now there's a bit of history here. What we've been seeing in Acts is that the presence of God and where God is working is moving out of this building, the temple where people thought it was, into the gathering of the people, the church. And so Stephen is drawn in to visit these rulers because they say, you are against the temple. And in a sense, that's sort of right. He doesn't want to tear the temple down, but the presence of God is now somewhere else. But Stephen says, listen, while that's true, the presence of God is not in this building. That's a continuance of the message of the Bible. It's not a change to the message of the Bible. Stephen, in calling them to leave their religious commitments and listen to God, is saying, I'm just asking you to do what God has always asked. And Luke, who's the writer of Acts, puts this story in here because he's saying something to us about the Christian life. He says we need to realise offering people what God is offering them will make people ang angry, strangely, because it's so good. But we choose to walk that path like Jesus, like Stephen. So, first thing we see is Stephen's point. Stephen, this is the longest speech we get in the book of Acts, and this is what Stephen is saying. We always prefer religious systems to listening to God. We always prefer religious systems to listening to God. But there's a phrase where I come from, teaching your granny to suck eggs. I cannot imagine where that phrase comes from. Uh, does anybody know, I wonder, strange picture. It basically is what Stephen is doing here, teaching his granny to suck eggs. It means telling people something that they should really already know, teaching people something that they would already know how to do. And you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, Stephen is a Greek 
Jews, so slightly less accepted than Jews who'd always lived in Israel. And he's standing here before the Sanhedrin, who are the highest level of these very kosher Jews who've always lived in Israel, the ruling council of the temple, the arbiters of what is properly religious or not. And Stephen is teaching his granny to suck eggs here because he stands up and gives them basically an overview story of their own religious scriptures. He schools them in the words of the scriptures that we have as the Old Testament. I mean, pretty ballsy. You've got to say, come in as the outsider and say, let me tell you what your own scriptures say, religious leaders. But Stephen is pointing some things out, important things that he thinks they must have missed. So he starts with Abraham. Abraham is the big daddy uh, of their religion the, and the founder of their nation. And Stephen says, listen, if we go back to before there was a temple at all, to the founder of this whole thing, Abraham's story is simply a story of God speaking to him and Abraham trusting God's words and doing what he said. That was it. He had nothing he could see at all. He had no place to go to meet with God at all. Just actually a promise that God would be with him wherever he went. And that sort of implies, doesn't it? You'll note, there is no temple and no place and no religious system like you guys have got. But there was still God's word and a trust in God's word right from the start. Then he moves on to another person further down the family line, Joseph. And what happened in that story? Well, Joseph told his brothers and uh, Stephen calls them the patriarchs, which means the fathers. They were the fathers of the nation that the people he was talking to were in. Your patriarchs, your fathers. Joseph told them the truth about God, but they didn't like it. They were jealous of him and sold him into slavery. But because Joseph did what Abraham did, which was heard God's words and trusted them, he was able to rise up in Egypt where he'd been sent as a slave and in the end save his family from starvation. Do you see the pattern here, Sanhedrin? There was no temple. They weren't even in the country they'd been promised. But God did save them. Why? Because someone trusted his words. There was no religious system. God's presence was with Joseph in Egypt, even miles away from where there'd ever be a temple. Oh, and here's another feature that's just rising to the surface, listeners. The people who should have trusted Joseph hated him for telling them the truth. Hmm, who could that be referring to? Well, next he moves on to Moses. And I guess you could put it like this. If Abraham is Bill Shankly, Moses is Bob Paisley. Now, I don't actually know anything about football, so I hope that illustration makes sense. We try and do cultural engagement here. We say connect with Liverpool every week. That's my attempt. I hope it means something to some of you. Anyway, by the time Moses comes about, the people are slaves in Egypt. Several generations later. And Moses got to know God. He met God. God and knew his presence and believed his words and he led the people out of slavery. He had nothing, no religious system, no temple, no priests, nothing, but he led God's people because he trusted God's words. 
but the people didn't believe in him. And then when he brought them out, they set up their own religion, a theme which Stephen says kind of followed them over the next several hundred years. They ignored God's actual words, which their leaders were supposed to trust, and used this religious system they'd set up, first a tent of meeting, and then incense, and then priests, and then a temple, ooh, just like the one you've got here, they used those things not to worship God and trust his words, but to make up their own religion. Now, can we see the pattern, listeners? We've never needed a particular place to connect with God, just his presence and his words. And can you see the other pattern, listeners? Some people, oh, by the way, people you're related to, have always hated and rejected God's words in favour of their own religion. The offer is this life-transforming trust in God's promises. But even that offer makes us angry because we prefer to grab and keep hold of our own man-made religion. That's been the pattern up till now with temples, priests and stuff like that. And Stephen says, still the same as he's talking to the Sanhedrin. Well, the Sanhedrin would have said, the temple we were told to build by God. Yes, true, says Stephen, but it was actually only Solomon who was a latecomer to the party who built the temple. People had been relating to God. Your heroes, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, they'd all been relating God simply by trusting his words for generations before that. And even after the temple was built, God said these words in the book of Isaiah. They should come up on the screen. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or well, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? See what God is saying and Stephen's saying, you know, guys, God made the whole earth. <laughs> it's not that he, that temple is his house that belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. You can't confine his presence to one particular holy place, one particular holy land. The message has always been, Stephen is saying, that the whole world is God's and he is with his people wherever they are. Abraham moving around, Joseph in Egypt, Moses bringing them out from Egypt. You can live for God, you can honour him, you can know him by trusting his words, not by any religious system, and you can do that anywhere. And that's even more true now, Stephen says, both when he was speaking and carrying on till today now, because God has poured out his spirit. We've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit as we've looked at Acts. The spirit is God himself, his presence coming into the lives of normal people, helping us, knowing us, changing us, wherever we are in the world. You don't go anywhere to get the Spirit. God sends the Spirit to you. And how do you get the Spirit? Well, it's the same old story from the very beginning of the Bible. You trust God's words, his promises. As far as Stephen's concerned, this is good news, isn't it? Like my friend James, being good or moral or right 
is not restricted anymore to a small group of people meeting God in a particular building. That's really good news. It's also, Stephen says, not new news. It's always how it worked. The temple that you have here is just a sign pointing to that bigger, longer standing truth that God is always with people who trust his words. It's why at Christchurch we try to be and we long to be word and spirit people, not place people. We call uh, everybody in our church to trust God's words and experience God's presence throughout their life. Not saying, if you come here and do this thing, you'll really meet with God. And I guess as a church that meets in a school, we could be a bit snooty about people like my friend James's church. People who think, oh, well, that particular sacred building is the place where God is and we must protect that. But he's not really with us the rest of the time. We could be snooty about that. That type of stuff is wrong. When you go into churches and see a sign saying this is God's house or uh, people saying you have to go to this particular place on a pilgrimage to meet with God. For Christians, that's really not true. So we should say that's wrong. But it's easy to be critical, to be honest, of other people's faults. People are going to look for the presence of God in buildings because they don't think they find him in the simple faith and joy-filled obedience of normal Christians. Which is where in Acts they could find God's presence. Perhaps not in the church today. And perhaps for us as a church, how does this apply? Well, we're a church that's looking for a building we can meet in. I was having a conversation with someone this week who was like, if only we had this building like in this type of place, then we could do this type of ministry. I long for that as much as anyone. It's an important job, but we don't wait for the right building to do obedient trusting. God's spirit is with us now, changing us, doing things active in the world. We crack on doing what he's got for us wherever we end up meeting. We don't wait for special holy places. But even wider than that, I think a lot of us are living life this Old Testament way as if God is present now when you're watching church or sitting with your family, or with your Christian friends. God's here right now. But the promises are very real to you here and not anywhere else. That life-changing presence and radical obedience to him, it's not real the rest of the time when you're out at work or with your friends or in the library or in the hospital. God's presence and his promises don't seem very real, which is strange because I need to remind you, like Stephen, God made all of that too. And his spirit is in you all the time if you're a Christian. Maybe this time of not being able to gather as much and certainly in the normal way we're used to, I think it's kind of exposed this in us a little bit that we don't do sacred spaces or get superstitious about special bits of special buildings. The truth is a lot of us had fallen into the habit of treating God as real and important when we're in a particular place at a particular time on Sunday morning. But if he doesn't matter very much and his promises aren't true and he isn't with us, 
when we are in different places at different times. We actually have the exact sort of religion that Stephen is so angry about. And when people have that type of religion, they get very upset if they see it being attacked. So someone says, oh yes, I'm very committed to coming to church and I serve wholeheartedly there, but I've never been one to connect with people in my work about my faith. I just do my work and go home. Say someone says that and someone else says, well, I'm not really sure that's very sort of biblical or gospel-hearted of you. What response will they get? Stop judging me. Go home to their husband or wife and say, that person is so self-righteous. If our religion's attacked, our religion of keeping God in his place, we get angry. Oh, I'm too busy to read the Bible with my children at home. I've sort of depended on kids' work to do that. Well, maybe you should think about reading the Bible with your kids at home. How dare you be so negative about my family life? Or people who've just said, you know, without coming to church, I don't really feel that connected to God, so I haven't really been living as a Christian that much. What religion is that? Where how you feel about it is the thing that really matters. The truth is amazing. God is present with you wherever you are. His presence is in your life. His life-giving words of promises that are there in Jesus are yours right now, whether you can come and gather or not. And if it makes you feel annoyed or angry or irritated to have it pointed out that we should all be getting on living with God's presence wherever we are, well, let's not make the mistake of these first religious moral people or the mistake of my friend James's church. The call has always been from God not to do some religious ceremony, but to take the presence of God into places where he is already at work, they're already his, he made them, and to trust his promises there. It is a false religion that pushes God into this box on Sunday morning and this on Tuesday evening or wherever. Encountering the real God has always been from the very beginning of the story a life-transforming reality that filters through to everything we do and we take to every place that we go. So if you're a person who's got into the habit of thinking there's this place or this area of life or this thing I do where God isn't relevant, let the Spirit change that through God's promises as he has been doing right the way from Abraham. And if some well-meaning, clumsy person points out you seem to be restricting God to a certain place or time, whether it's home or church or the mornings or the evenings, don't be attacked when someone points that out. Consider, repent if you need to, because it's good news that God wants to be part of every part of your life and his promises, his word and his spirit living in you means that can be a reality. Here's the second thing to see. Luke's point, and Luke's point is this. Luke is the writer of Acts, and I think he puts this story in here to tell us this. Christians sometimes take the Jesus role. 
I don't know whether you saw this, it's uh, popped up in the last uh, year or so, more in America than here. People putting these signs outside their houses and calling it the secular creed. Now creed is a religious word, but secular is saying we don't need God. So these are like basic beliefs for a certain type of person who doesn't see any need of God. It's like a modern religious statement, uh, a statement which demonstrates your piety, your goodness, what you think is right. Now look at that list of things. All of them, I think, are true to an extent and they have amazing purposes. I mean, if they're seeking racial equality or kindness to one another, who can be against that? I'm certainly not. But all of those things only have their fulfillment in the message of Jesus and they're all limited or defined by his message. You know, women are people too. That insight only comes from the Bible, which says men and women are both made in God's image. And kindness is the thing that matters most. Well, it's only actually Christianity that has taught that. That was why it was so radical in the ancient world it entered. So these things are true, but they're there to point us to the real truth, which is Jesus. But I'm guessing that if you see someone with one of these signs on their lawn, you can't take it, as they really want you to knock their door and say, your religious instincts are leading in the right way, but let me tell you about the fulfillment, it's Jesus. That's not why that sign is out there, to advertise for Christian callers, to tell them the truth. Why don't people who seem spiritually awake like being told? that the truth's in Jesus? Well, because the message Jesus brings is one of repentance. That all these things on your sign are true-ish, but like the temple, the religious commitment could be getting in the way of the real thing, which is connecting with God. Like the temple, these things are good, but they're only a staging post on a path to admitting all the things you get wrong, not right, and coming to God and being filled by his spirit. And people, even people who seem spiritually alive enough to put a sign in their lawn, don't like being told that. You're saying, they clock, that I can't be good enough the way I am. I already have this religious commitment. I do not need God to be a good person. People who are atheists are often very offended even by that suggestion that they might need God. Stephen says it's true, even of the very religious people he was talking to as well. He says, you're stiff-necked people. You always reject people who come to tell you this message that God wants your trust and to, to be in your presence, not your religious observance. You always attack those people, including Jesus himself. And that infuriated the listeners so much that they showed the great brilliance of their temple-based morality by murdering him. Just uh, by the by, if you ever find yourself in the place where you need to kill or torture or even just oppress people and silence them in order to protect what you think the truth is, God's not on your side if you're doing that. But notice what happens to Stephen in that passage we had read. He sees Jesus at God's side in heaven. And then basically what happens to him echoes 
exactly what happened to Jesus when he died. Even to the same words, to forgive these people who are killing him. And then Luke uses a very odd description to describe the end of a stoning. Stoning is a brutal way to die. Luke says Stephen fell asleep. The result of his death, we'll discover, is that the disciples, I mean undoubtedly incredibly traumatised, but the disciples have to scatter from Jerusalem to avoid all of them being stoned. And the result of that is that they uh, are able to tell more and more people about Jesus. More people become Christians way beyond the Jewish religious bubble in Jerusalem. Now, why is Luke telling us all of that? Because I think some of us believe that Christianity will spread when people who put secular signs on their lawns or whatever or think Christians are wonderful and want to be wonderful like us too and so want to be Christians. We think that's how the gospel will spread and it would suit us fine if it did spread that way. And that's not totally untrue. It's a grain of truth. The strong, impressive community that the Spirit forms in Acts does draw people the way that Christians care for the poor and love their enemies does show the gospel, but they love their enemies because they have enemies. And they have enemies not because they're annoying or they're trying to take over the government or they're racist or they're anti-people of other religions. Those are often reasons Christians have enemies. That's not why the church in Acts had enemies, but because people hate the message they're sharing. So people have this weird thing drawn into the amazing good that they're doing, but hating what they're saying. And this visceral hatred seems to turn into violence and oppression. And so the more common way the Bible describes the message of Jesus going forward is the Jesus model, the Stephen model. People hate being told to repent and turn to God, so they attack the person who's told them that. And there are tears and heartbreak and rejection. Like in the case of my friend James, there are nervous breakdowns and losing your job. But the fact that Christians love their enemies anyway, that points to Jesus more than anything. That's the moment Stephen is like Jesus the most, when he asks for these people who are killing him to be forgiven. And that seems to be the cork popping out that sprays the world with the champagne of the gospel. Luke, the writer of Acts, is saying, like Jesus, when Christians bear up under unjust suffering, when all they've done is bring a brilliant message of God's availability to everyone and they love their enemies through that, that's what really points to Jesus, because that is actually what he did. No, let's just be clear what we're not saying. I am not putting it out there that you should behave like an idiot. We're about to do a series in our connect groups, thinking about how to talk about Jesus without being that guy. I'm not saying, uh, uh, you know, annoy your neighbours, stick horrible tat Christian tat up on your windows, Correct people for swearing in your office. No, I'm calling you to honesty. As you discuss the truth with people, we need to tell them to drop what they now think and turn to God, repentance. 
But we're not saying hassle people till you get persecuted, annoy people. No, it's this Jesus-like combination of telling people the truth they don't like and undeniably loving the people who wish you harm that creates gospel progress in the power of the Spirit. There's people right now probably in your life, a neighbour or a work colleague or a boss who you don't really get on with. Maybe someone you free, wish you could be free from by moving house or changing job or uh, not contacting your family anymore. It could be they don't like you because you're a Christian or it could be just you don't get on with them. The call here is to self-sacrificially love that person, not push Christian trucks through their door. And sooner or later, you'll tell them about Jesus and they probably won't like it, but you will continue to love them anyway. And that's how the gospel will move forward. So one, I'm not saying let's be annoying. Two, I'm not in any way romanticising or making out like Christians around the world being killed or imprisoned for their faith is something we should take lightly and say it doesn't matter or worse, be in favour of. Luke notes that Saul is watching this and he goes on to be described as the worst of sinners for his hatred of the church. And God describes a lot in the New Testament the judgment he is holding back to unleash on those who hate his people and kill them. We should hate that. We should pray and use the power we have as British citizens to lobby for those people. And we should even stick up for Christians in our country when they're being hassled, even if we feel like they've been a bit annoying about it. And we definitely mourn and weep over the deaths of Christians around the world and the evil that causes those deaths. But despite this story of people just trying to share good news and ending up tortured and oppressed and killed, despite that story being repeated multiple awful times, Christians have not and do not give up. Because for Christians, death is, as Luke says, going to sleep. There have been countless people who have gone before us who have really believed they will just go to rest with God if they die, so they have risked or given up their lives to speak the truth. And their lives, like Stephen's, have not been wasted. We are unlikely at this moment to be killed for our faith. But we do need to get rejection of people, not because they're irritating, but because they don't shy away from the truth. Rejection of people uh, like Jesus is part of how this whole thing is going to move forward. And the non-middle class, non-sensible, disruptive effect on that in our lives often means we don't face up to that. And so it doesn't move forward. My friend James had to leave his job for patiently explaining the truth about God to religious people. I have to trust, and so does he, that his pain won't be wasted. So let's hear Stephen's point. Remember Stephen's point? Let's not reject the truth of the gospel for an easier reality. Let's not believe having God in your life is just for Sundays. He lives in us. Trust his promises like the one who went before us. Forget the hypocrisy that says, 
I come to church and I go to religious places, but I don't actually repent. I keep God out of areas of my life. Let's listen to Stephen and turn away from that. And let's hear Luke's point. No one is going to stop this message, even if they kill the messengers. In fact, the rejection that Jesus experienced is one of the ways that he is seen in the world now as we bear up under that and love our enemies. And if we love him, Jesus, we look at him, we look at Stephen, we look at how Jesus-like that is to forgive your enemies. We want that suffering Messiah to be lifted up. We walk the same path. The worst that could happen is that we fall asleep. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you're offering us so much more than a religious system. We are sorry for all the ways we don't want to turn to you. We want to keep our rules, our regulations, our places. Instead, we pray your spirit would pour into every part of our lives. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us bear up against unjust suffering in order to point to Jesus. We trust you won't waste the pain that comes from that and we pray you won't. But rather, as we step into that, people will trust you and come to know you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.